So the greatest comebacks of all time. I wonder what might be on your list. Maybe the 1993 NFL wildcard game with the Buffalo Bills. Some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about, but some of you will. Buffalo's down 35-3 to in the third quarter of an NFL playoff game. And the stadium has largely emptied out because their star quarterback, Jim Kelly, is out. Their other main running back is out. And instead, you've got a backup quarterback, Frank Reich, and a backup running back. And then the unthinkable happens. That backup quarterback engineers the greatest comeback in NFL history. Five touchdowns leads them to tie the game. It actually goes into overtime, and in overtime, they win the game. That game is just now known as the comeback. It's been immortalized. Some others, maybe in the art world, could look at a figure like Andy Warhol scorned by nearly every self-respecting art collector, such that years after he died, 16 of his pieces would go up for sale and only two sold. No one was interested in his work. And yet in the past few years, the man known sort of as the king of pop art would go on to break the record for highest annual sales, his top five pieces amassing nearly half a billion dollars. Or maybe you might look to a political figure like Winston Churchill. In 1915, when Winston was 40, I shouldn't really call him Winston, should I? When Winston Churchill, we should say, was 40, it just seems wrong. Christian would correct me. Yeah, he led one of the most disastrous naval campaigns in British history. Members of his own party declared him a public danger, even calling him so far as a maniac. And yet, his Prescient warnings regarding Adolf Hitler, his courage under fire. Many say that Winston Churchill, really more than any other individual, helped save Western civilization from the ruthless Nazi war machine. Right? Major comeback, Winston Churchill. Okay, so I just mentioned three examples because comebacks make for great stories. Who doesn't love such a story? Friends, maybe you're thinking, yeah, I could use a story like that in my own life. My own life's in need of somewhat of a comeback. Maybe you feel down in terms of career, academics, friendships. Maybe a comeback, however impossible in your life, is just what you're praying for. But maybe even a little more seriously, you're like, I need a comeback in relation to God. I need something miraculous to happen there. Maybe you've come this morning and you fear that you've made so many mistakes. You have dug yourself into such a hole with God that nothing short of a miracle could restore you to him. The Old Testament nation of Israel, they actually found themselves in a similar situation. Israel had rebelled against God to the point that they would be exiled by God. So cities would be raised and lands would be pillaged and whatever population that survived was going to be deported to Babylon. Israel's future appeared over, right? She's just a byword for all practical purposes. And yet we read last week of how God would raise up a servant. Only this servant wouldn't save Israel on the glorious field of battle, nor would the servant save Israel at the ballot box. No, instead the servant would be We read despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one who would pour out his soul unto death and be numbered with the transgressors. 
Now, humanly speaking, Israel needed a comeback, and yet this was no way to begin a comeback. Not like this. Not in this manner. And yet, in the horror and humiliation, something glorious was at work. The vicarious sacrifice of that servant, God was using to indeed save his people. Which brings us to Isaiah chapter 54 and 55 this morning. If you would go ahead and turn there, Isaiah 54 and 55. Not 11 chapters, just two chapters this morning. They're going to be uh, page 614, so if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find them in the seatbacks before you, page 614. And this will be our outline as you turn. Just give it right at the outset. Chapter 54 is the church triumphant. Chapter 55, the church militant. So those are our two points, 54, the church triumphant, and 55, the church militant. Let's first think. The church triumphant, the church triumphant. Chapter 54, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 9. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations. And will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. All right, so stop there. Now, I think we have to recognize this is a startling way to open. We just closed chapter 53 with a horrific execution, and we open chapter 54 with singing and with celebration. Verse 1, sing, O barren one, break forth into singing, cry aloud. This is not exactly the response we expect following a funeral. It's at least out of place, if not downright rude, disrespectful. And yet, what do we sing? We sing of this great reversal where the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. I remember barrenness would have been a disgrace in the ancient Near East. And it seems God is promising here to remove his own people's disgrace. Now this right there would be an outlandish claim to an exiled people whose population had been whittled to about nothing yeah, friends, in the Bible, you know, children, what do they, what do they represent? They represent, represent hope and future and prosperity. 
you know, sadly today, many see children as a hindrance, right? Children, they get in the way of our careers. They maybe represent a burdensome financial drain. Children can tie us down. But friends, that's not how the Bible talks about children. Children are a blessing. Something even today that more atheistic nations like Russia or China are forced to recognize as they face these catastrophic population implosions, right? There's no economic future. There's no political future. There's no natural future without children. Just basic fact. And Isaiah says, Israel, well, there will be so many descendants that they're going to need a lot more tents, right? Do not hold back. Stretch out the cords we read. Right, clear out all the stock at Academy Sports. Buy them all. Every onesie at Walmart. Yeah, might as well buy that as well. Something miraculous is happening in these opening verses. For notice, there will be children for people who have not, we read in verse 1, not been in labor. Well, how does that happen? Children to a people who've not been in labor. Well, it's not yet clear how that's going to happen. And yet we read of their spread to the right and to the left, right, to the east and to the west, such that their offspring, verse 3, will possess the nations. And yet that mention of, of a barren woman and offspring and possessing the nations, does that remind you of anything? Maybe God's covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15 for, you know, Sarah, if you know the story, she was barren, and at this point, Abraham needed a walker. He was so old. Yet God directed Abraham out to look through his squinting eyes up into that night sky, and he said, looking at the stars, so shall your offspring be, Genesis fifteen five. I will make you into a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis twelve three. Part of what Isaiah is saying to his people is that God has not forgotten his promise. He has not forgotten the promise that he made to Abraham. He relates to his people as well through these covenants. You know, a covenant is essentially a relationship. But it's a relationship that's formalized with certain conditions. So we think of human covenants we make, like a covenant of marriage. We think of, of that perhaps. And, and the covenants God makes, they're, they're covenants of of relationship based on promises and particular commitments. And there are blessings if the relationship is kept and honored. There are penalties if the relationship is broken. And the covenant is just the terms of that relationship. And God is saying, the covenant I made with Abraham, I will keep, you will see. The nations will flock to you. Well, moving on from Abraham, verses 4 to 7, Israel is now presented as a bride. And who is Israel's husband? None other than the Lord himself. You know, about a decade ago, all the world was abuzz about who was going to marry Prince William. You know, the, the heir to the throne there in England. The future heir. All the trappings, right, of royalty and wealth and power and influence. And Prince William's official title is Duke of Cambridge of the most noble order of the garter, something I had to look up, founded in the 14th century. The most ancient and most noble order of the thistle, some Scottish chivalry, I don't understand exactly. Privy Council of the United Kingdom, personal aide de camp, right? It just goes, those are all the formal titles for Prince William. And it sounds impressive. 
And so when he chose Kate Middleton to be his spouse, right, everyone thought, oh, the luckiest woman in the world. But Israel? Well, she's not chosen by English royalty, friends. She has instead been chosen by the maker of all things, verse 5. The Holy One, the God of the whole earth. Friends, who can compare to titles like that? What royalty can compare to that? Imagine being wed to this God. The honor, the, the distinction of alone being the people that can claim this God as their husband. The privilege and the prestige of that. And yet these references again to Israel, to God as the maker of his people, their husband and redeemer. Does that not remind you of another covenant? The one that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. You know the story, God delivers them out of Egypt, chapters 1 to 18 in, the ex, in Exodus, out of Egypt so that he can draw them near to him, which is chapters 19 to 40. And if you know Exodus 19 to 24, that is the wedding ceremony where God weds his people. Israel is brought down the aisle, so to speak, at the foot of Mount Sinai where God, right, the husband, waits for them. Then there's the wedding sermon, Exodus 20 through 23. Then there's the vows and a meal, just like you would have at a wedding celebration in chapter 24. And then in Exodus 25 to 31, Moses ascends the mountain, and we're shown how God is going to dwell with his new bride in, in safety, intimately through the tabernacle. It's, it's to be his new home amidst his people, where he's going to dwell with his people. Right? Such a wedding speaks to commitment, to, to care, to intimacy, to union with God. And yet, you know what happens right on the honeymoon? God's people are unfaithful. They commit adultery by worshiping the golden calf. And in Jeremiah 31, refers to those vows that Israel broke and says, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Though I was their husband, they broke their commitments to me and their vows to me. Now, we'd expect God at this point, right, to divorce his ungrateful bride, his unfaithful bride. And yet we read verse 7, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. Friends, who loves like this? The God of Hosea does. Though Israel had defiled that covenant at Sinai, God was not done with his people. Their own unfaithfulness would not diminish his faithfulness. And then we're pointing verse 9 to Noah. We're reminded of yet another covenant in verse 9. In the same way that God had promised not to destroy again the earth by flood, so he promises here not to destroy them. Israel's exile, in other words, won't be the end of them. Isaiah is walking through God's promises, his covenants with his people. And so we come to 54.10. 54.10. Go ahead and look down there. For the mountains made apart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Well, friends, right there, verse 10, what is that covenant of peace? You know, Isaiah's already introduced us to the prince of peace back in Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, we read, there will be no end. 
Right? That's referring to God's future anointed king. And then we read last week of the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53.5. Right? So we've got the promised peace that's tied to a promised king and a servant. Now stay with me for just a moment. Right? Track with me. Look forward to chapter 55, verse 3. Chapter 55, verse 3. Isaiah is going to call them to incline their ear, to, to come, and then says, And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So again, we're reading of a covenant, of an everlasting one. The steadfast, sure love God has for David. This, this time, we have allusions to 2 Samuel 7. Again, Isaiah is taking us through these covenants. But is this everlasting covenant in Isaiah 55.3? Is that different in any way from the covenant of peace he's mentioned in 54.10? Well, not according to Ezekiel, who actually takes the two and he brings them together in a single verse. Ezekiel 37.26. I will make a covenant of peace, God says with his people. It shall be what? This covenant of peace? An everlasting covenant. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Friends, if you know Ezekiel 37, he's speaking there finally of the new covenant that we enjoy in Christ. When God gives his spirit to his people and replaces their hearts of stone with, with hearts of flesh. Paul says it's this covenant, right? And the covenants that find their fulfillment in this new covenant in Jesus Christ where every promise of God, every one finds their yes and amen in him. So friends, why, just ask the question, all this work, why would, why would Isaiah take us on a tour of God's covenants with his people, right? Abraham, Mount Sinai with Moses, Noah, then forward to David. Why would Isaiah be doing that right now? I think it's in part because he wants God's people to know that the sufferings of his servant have secured their salvation. The sufferings of his, of his servant, they have secured their salvation. Notice how Isaiah 54 follows right on the heels of Isaiah 53. It was only through the sorrows and the servant's death that their deliverance and the hope of these covenants and promises could possibly be fulfilled. But friends, I think even more broadly than that, God wants his people to know that when he makes promises to them, he keeps them. He doesn't back off them. All the commitments, all the promises he's made over years, hundreds of years, he hasn't forgotten them. Isaiah pulls them all together. I know them all. I have not forgotten one of those commitments. Friends, it is so easy for us to forget. So easy for us. How often do we make commitments only to break them? Or we make commitments and we don't even bother to break them. We just forget them. Right? They might be small things. Right? I'll call you right back. Man, you forget to do it. Or I'll take out the trash Sunday night, right? Trash Monday morning, forget to do it. I'll pay that bill, and then the notice comes, you forgot to pay the bill. We all know from a few weeks ago how bad I am at birthdays. Remember the Fig Newton and Maglite story? Yeah, well, 
Even with a note and a reminder from my wife this week, I still forgot a birthday. It wasn't hers, thankfully, but I still forgot a birthday. Friends, God is not like us. He doesn't make promises and then forget to fulfill them. He doesn't make promises and fail to keep them. God is always good on every promise he makes. Christian, that means that every promise that he has ever made to you, the promises we find in his word, like the promise to give you wisdom when you ask, James 1.5, the promise to provide a way out and a way of escape in the midst of temptation, 1 Corinthians 10. The promise that your salvation is secure no matter what, John 10. The promise that God will never punish you for your sin. Though he may discipline you in love as a father does, Hebrews 12. The promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13. The promise that he will in fact finish the good work he's begun in you, Philippians 1. The promise that he's gone ahead of you and is even now preparing a place for you, John 14. The promise he's coming back for you, Luke 12. God has not forgotten a single one of those promises this morning. Not one. They've not slipped his mind. In fact, regardless of Whatever your circumstances in your own life, whatever they might be screaming to you about God, God is, in fact, if you are in Christ, he's working all those plans to bring his very promises to pass in your own life. The question is, and the question that Isaiah needed Israel to address in their own hearts is, will they trust him? Will you trust him? Will you remain faithful to him? Will you cry out to him? Will you keep believing in him? Will you not give up on him? But will you wrestle with him and pray to him and wait for him? That's the message Israel would need. Because in their coming exile, they would assume that God had forgotten them, abandoned them, that he would not make good on his promises to them. And yet he is saying, even in exile, even in their darkest moments of coming despair, I have not forgotten about you and I have not abandoned you. All those promises I've made to you. Yes, you have been faithless. I am faithful. Friends, you can never be down and out with this God by your side. Never at all. And it was this God in his faithfulness, faith in his promises, Faith in those promises, despite their present circumstances, that's what Israel would need in her coming exile. But not only will God keep every promise, he's going to go on to say, yeah, and there's, you know what? There's a better promise coming, a greater promise. That's the promise of the new covenant that he's tying together. All those past covenants, the one with Abraham and with Moses and to some degree even with Noah and then with David, they're going to find their fulfillment and full expression in this better covenant, in this new covenant, a covenant of peace and everlasting covenant. And what will that covenant be like? Look down to verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all of your wall of precious stones. Okay, so it's a little lost in us at first, but basically Isaiah is saying, hey, forget the tents at Academy Sports, right? 
You're not going to need those. Make way for a glorious new city. That is what's in store for you. One that sparkles and glitters like gold. Beautiful to behold. Now, it might have been slightly lost because we don't know what antimony is. Some of you may know the English word antinomy. That's like an apparent contradiction. This is the M and the N are flipped. What is that? And carbuncles. Kind of sounds like a communicable disease. And you know what? You'd be close. Because any of you are in medicine, you know they're like pus-filled boils. Don't go Google it. I made that mistake. Which is very confusing, because why would a glorious city be lined with such boils? But there's actually an older use of this word that just refers to a precious stone. Which most modern translations note, you can see it there in the footnote of the ESV. Point being, though it may initially not be clear to us, this is a glorious city. It's a gemstone studded kind of city. And you know, John's going to pick up this very image in Revelation 21, and he's going to use this image to describe the final heavenly city. So what's being pictured here in verses 11 and 12 is the church's glory one day in heaven. That's what awaits God's people. So regardless of what the present church might look like, whether it looks beleaguered and beat up, whether it looks weathered and worn, whether it looks inconsequential and obsolete, perhaps even local churches look harmful in some of the things they say and teach on the wrong side of history even. God's saying this church triumphant, pictured here in Isaiah 54, it is glorious. It is going to be wonderful. And at the end of history, make no mistake, it will be on the right side of history. And all will know. And in this new covenant, verse 13, we read that all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Maybe you hear echoes of Jeremiah 31 in that language. Jesus is going to pick up this very verse, which we read earlier from from John chapter 6 in the service, where he claims to be the bread of life, the one who possesses words of eternal life, and that it is through him That the children of God are taught an amazing claim to to deity, even on Jesus' part. Well, friend, where do we find God's children taught by him today? It's not in Islam. It's not through the Apocrypha. It's not through just even the Torah. It's not in self-help resources. It's not in the psychologized self. It's in Jesus and these words spoken by him and taught through the apostles. These words are alone the words, the words of Christ that bring life and peace. Such that verse 15, we read that whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. And verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Right, this is a glorious picture if you know the old hymn. Right, The great church victorious one day shall be that church at rest. That's what's being pictured in verses 11 down through verse 17. Friends, if you are in Christ, these verses, this depiction, this is actually, this is your story. This is your destiny. This is your inheritance. You know, so often we read movies. We read movies. No, we watch movies and we read stories, right? We watch movies, we read stories, and we wish those amazing stories were our story, right? Wouldn't it be great if that thing I just saw, wouldn't that be great if that was my story, if that was my life? Friend, what story, though, can compare with this? You can't make a movie about this. Nothing will do justice with this. 
to be loved by a God, everlasting compassionate love like this, to be given an inheritance like this, carbuncles and all. No, to know union, to know communion, to know intimacy with a God like this. Friends, nothing can compare to this. This is an amazing story. Then he writes something Paul's going to quote in 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Friend, is that your hope this morning? Why would that not be your hope? I mean, ask yourself honestly, is there a better hope out there? Is there a better future than this future that God writes for his children? Friends, the picture that Isaiah paints for us is one of a glorious church triumphant. And if chapter 54 speaks to what God certainly will do, chapter 55 really speaks to what we ought to do in response to what God will do. And chapter 55 really gets us more to today, what we sometimes refer to as the church militant. That brings us to the second point, the church militant as we come in to chapter 55. And just to be clear, if you're unfamiliar with that term, when I say church militant, do not think physical weapons of war, right? What did Jesus tell to Peter? Put down your weapon. He doesn't establish, Jesus does, he doesn't establish his kingdom with the sword. Nor is he speaking of the church militant as a church with overly aggressive and combative personalities. Sadly, sometimes that's true. That's not what Jesus means here. He doesn't use the expression. That's what Christians don't mean that by that expression. The church Milton is just an expression Christians have used to describe the church in its present age as it wages in spiritual battle. As we wage war against our own sinful nature, and as we fight, as Paul says, Ephesians 6:12, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, right? It's a spiritual fight. And so with this glorious hope of chapter 54 before us, Isaiah is saying, okay, therefore, how do you respond? Israel, how do you get in on this hope? How can you be sure that this future in chapter 54 can be your future? Right? I want us to first note something in chapter 55 and note how the church militant responds to God's proclaimed word. Notice how they respond to God's proclaimed word. Chapter 55, verse 1. Come, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. We'll stop right there. You notice God invites his people to come. He invites us to come to him. And notice how we come to God. We come to God by listening to God. That's what he says. Come, incline your ear and come. We come to God by listening to God, right? His word is the way to him. So listen, verse 2. Incline your ear, verse 3. Right? Hear that your soul may live. We can only truly know God and be accepted by God and enter into that great city of God we just read about by listening to and responding to the word of God. 
That is the only way. And who can come? Isaiah says, everyone who thirsts. Everyone who has drunk deeply from the well of this world and the more they drink, the more they are left wanting, unsatisfied, because the water of this world does not satisfy, it does not quench, it does not fulfill. Remember the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, right, the water of the world will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 4, 13. What is this cost? You know, for centuries, folks have searched in vain for the fountain of youth, for some waters that promise to reverse the aging process, right, explorers in centuries past, they spent vast sums of gold trying to find such waters, right, the skincare and supplement industry today, right, they earn billions off the promise of selling you such things. But Jesus says, you know what, the real thing, yeah, you can have it. You can have the real thing. And what will it cost? The best part, nothing. It will cost nothing. So notice we're given in these verses a picture of a banquet, right? This is a banquet, like the party to end all parties, a royal party in that great royal city, picture back in 54, where there are these gem-studded gates, and the gates of that city, they are wide open, and the banquet table is set, and the fare is rich, right? The food is rich, and Isaiah says it is free. It is open to all without discrimination. All that's necessary to join this party, all that's necessary to have a seat at that table in that glorious city, notice are two things from our text. You must first recognize your need. You must recognize your need. Right? You must be thirsty. You must be hungry to taste of this world and to know that it does not satisfy you know, what did we sing in that opening song? All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Yeah, come you sinners. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So you've, you've got to be thirsty and you've got to see your poverty. You've got to see your own poverty. That you cannot pay your way there. That the price of the ticket into that city is beyond you. That you can't earn it and you can't buy it. What does Isaiah say? Without money, without price. How can he say without money, without price? Because Isaiah 53, the servant has already paid the price. He has paid it. Jesus Christ, what he has done through his death on the cross, paid that ticket with his own blood. And he's purchased it, and he invites you to come. It is open to all insofar as you come through the gate of Jesus and you see you're thirsty and you see your poverty and you come. So listen, if you come this morning and you don't identify as a Christian, but if you've come and you know something of Isaiah is talking about, you've lived in this world, you've tasted of it, you've tasted the best of it, and to your surprise and horror and disappointment, it does not satisfy. If you are thirsty and you see your poverty, Isaiah is saying, come to Jesus. 
Come to him. Trust in his death to pay the penalty of your sins. Trust in his own resurrection for the hope of your salvation. Right? Repent and believe and be saved. But don't take it from me. Just take it right from Isaiah. What does he say? Verse 6. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. What an evangelist Isaiah is. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now the last two verses we sometimes, I think, take out of context. But I think the point is not like God's logic, how his mind works. But it's to reflect the fact that we wouldn't expect salvation this way. We wouldn't dream up a salvation where God's son would suffer and be sacrificed for us. We wouldn't write it that way. We wouldn't plan it that way. We wouldn't do it that way. But that's because God's ways are not our ways. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But friends, that's what the church militant does. It turns to God and it trusts in God by responding to the proclaimed word of God. But not only does it respond to his proclaimed word, but I think there's a second thing I want you to see about the church militant, right? The church today it responds to his proclaimed word, but secondly, it rests. It rests in his powerful word. It rests in his powerful word. Look there to verse 10, chapter 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that which goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Stop there. So notice how God's word is likened to water that irrigates a parched earth. And just like that, when God's word waters the earth, this barren desert, what happens? It springs to life. Fields that were once brown and life, lifeless, they become green now and vibrant. It's a picture of death giving rise to life. So Isaiah is saying, listen, if you want to see real change, you want to see real growth, you want to see real transformation, you want to see even death to life, you're not going to find it in the latest diet. The latest diet the latest workout fad, they cannot bring about that kind of transformation. The latest self-care strategy, right? what is Sunday? Self-care Sunday, I'm told. You're here, so I think you get it at one level. But right, the latest self-care strategy, that can't bring about that transformation. The latest budget or climate deal, however much we discuss it, can't bring this about. Church marketing slogans can't do it. Vision statements and entertaining programs can't do it. Humor, gimmicks, and manipulative appeals can't do it either. 
God says only my word that goes out from my mouth can accomplish this kind of change. My Christian friend just begs the question, what are you trusting in for change this morning? What do you really think can bring about the change in your life that you desire and you say you want? Maybe what other false promises are you holding fast to? Isaiah is saying this word can change you. Only it can bring about that transformation. You know, Isaiah is divided into basically three books. I mentioned this in the first sermon. I wouldn't blame you for forgetting. Book one is 1 to 39, chapters 1 to 39. It's the book of the king when we have a promised king come before us. Book two is really chapters 40 to 55, what we're tying up. It's the book of the servant. And it's interesting because in this second book, it's noteworthy that the book of the servant, 40 to 55, is bracketed around God's word. Chapter 40 opens with that statement. Remember, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. That word of God that is sure and eternal. And yet here, as it closes, we're given this picture of the word that is not only eternal, it is powerful. The word does the work and the word brings life. I hope you understand that's why everything we do and mean to do It's centered around this word. It's the center of these services. It's why, to some of your surprise, we keep these lights on. Because we want to be able to read the word. When we sing, we don't just want to be able to sing the words on the screen, though that's great. But if we want to sing them in our worship guides, we want to be able to sing them there. As the word is read, we want to be able to look down and read it ourselves. As I preach to you, we want you to be able to read it and see it and observe it. It's why we pray the word. It's why we'll see the word in just a moment in the Lord's Supper. It's why we gather around that word in our life groups. It's why we seek to teach that word in Bible studies throughout the week. It's why we've been promoting Simeon Trust workshops that help people get into the word. It's why we evangelize with the word on campus. It's why we don't seek just to play games with our youth, but what do we want to do? Yeah, games are fine, and pour this word into their hearts. Because this word alone accomplishes God's work. Everything we do in our public ministry as a church, to every private conversation that you seek to have with one another, all of that should be watered by the word of God if you want to see any change in any life. Because only the word can do the work. Only it can bring about that change we need. Such that as we close in 12 and 13... Right, The mountains and the hills break forth into singing. The cypress tree now towers. And instead of the briar, the myrtle blooms with a thousand flowers. Verse 13. All creation rejoicing at what God does through his word. Friends, Israel was in need of a major comeback. A serious comeback but one that no backup quarterback, even no freshman kicker, one that no political figure or military leader could muster. And so God gives her a glimpse into a glorious future. As God's servant suffered affliction, 53.4, so will they, 54.11. As God's servant was taught by the Lord, 50 verse 4, so will they, 54 
verse 13, as God's servant was vindicated and will be by the Lord, 50 verse 8, so will they, 54 17, as they share in his sufferings, so too one day they will share in his glory. The church militant will be one day the church triumphant. Israel had been cut down to all but a stump. And yet out of that stump, God's king and servant would rise. And the nations would flock to him. And all creation would praise him. Friends, do you? Do you? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for your word. We give you praise that you set out for us hopes. And not just fanciful hopes. Not just a roll of the dice thing we might think could be true. A probability but certain hopes and sure hopes for your people that every promise you make will come to pass. And you tell us exactly how to come and how to partake and how to see the change we so desperately need. And we give you praise for being such a faithful God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.